0: Wow, what great singing from you guys this morning. Y'all, like told the the first service, y'all make an old boy want to come back from vacation. <laughs> it was good to be here and good to be able to sing with you and be able to worship our Lord together with all you fine people here at Ivy Creek. And it is good to be back with you. I want to thank you for affording me and my family an opportunity to be able to get away and uh, just be able to rest and recuperate a little bit and we did exactly that and uh, so it was exciting and but we're glad to be back with you this morning. I also thank Pastor Dave uh, for filling in for me last week and um, and for all of the church staff for uh, taking care of things in my absence and I just want you to know you have a wonderful church staff. Uh, you have a wonderful group of people who uh, serve you here in this church, and, uh, and I'm, I'm grateful for them, and I'm grateful for, uh, for the fact that I get to serve alongside them. Um, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, uh, please take them and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We are going to continue our study uh, in the Gospel of Mark, and if you will remember the last time when we were all back together, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated the Lord's Supper together. And uh, in doing so, we, we were looking at, in the context, examining Jesus celebrating Passover with his disciples. And if you'll recall, we talked about in that meal, of the Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, he infused that meal with an entirely new meaning and that meaning was indicative of the fact that he would be going to the cross and that he would uh, rise from the dead and so uh, he instituted the Lord's Supper uh, during this last time when they shared a meal together and you'll recall that prior to uh, Jesus celebrating the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper with his disciples he dropped a bomb on them He, he looked at them and said listen um there's a betrayer among you. One of you will betray me. And it it caused each of them to begin to look at each other and look at themselves and, and question, is it I? Is it, is it I? And of course we know that the betrayer was, was none other than Judas who had already gone to the scribes and to the chief priests and had already agreed to betray Jesus for the price of 30 pieces of silver. Now, when we, when we look at all of what was taking place during this final night before Jesus' crucifixion, particularly as we look at it across the spectrum of all the different Gospels, and particularly as we look at John's Gospel, we find that Judas, at some point following the meal, exited the upper room. And he left Jesus alone with the other 11 disciples. And he went out to go in and carry out exactly what he had uh, declared that he would do, and that was to betray Jesus. And it's at this point in John's gospel that John begins to launch into very in-depth teaching from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17 of John's gospel of all the things that Jesus began to teach those 11 during that final night. He talked to them about about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He talked to them about the importance of them remaining connected to him uh, and and, and not leaving him and, and things along that line. And it was sometime after that meal and it was sometime after that time of teaching... That as we come back to Mark's gospel, we realize that Jesus and led the disciples out to go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he would pray. And it was just prior to doing that that Jesus drops another bomb right in the middle of the disciples. He says to them, beginning in verse 27, read along with me. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. For the people of God, let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for this day, this beautiful day that you've given us. Beautiful Lord's day to come to your house, to be able to read your word and to be able to, to take time to focus on it and to contemplate uh, its meaning and its application to our very lives. And so I pray that today that that would be what we would do over the next few minutes. We'd be able to push out all the things that are distracting us from whatever's happened in our previous week, whatever may be coming up in the week ahead of us. May we be able to focus our concentration on your Word and allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us through it. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I provided for you an outline in your bulletin. I hope you got one of those when you came in. And that outline just is going to hopefully help us just sort of see the flow of the text. Uh, But also I hope that it's going to help us to be able to comprehend the hope that is implicit in this text, but is also made explicit to us in other portions of Scripture that we'll get to. I mentioned earlier that here in verse 27, Jesus just kind of, he he probably threw them off, threw his disciples off their balance with what he says in verse 27. And, And he makes a prediction that would have caught them completely off guard. In fact, that's the first point that I want you to see on your outline this morning. is simply this, the the prediction that Jesus gives of a falling away that fulfills prophecy. A A prediction of a falling away that fulfills prophecy. Jesus says this very clearly. He says, all of you will be made to stumble, or as some of your versions will write, to fall away because of me this night. Now, as we contemplate that statement, I want you to notice that Jesus answers some very specific questions that we might have when he he says what he does. First of all, who does Jesus say, well, will this happen to? Well, it's very clear. It's to all of us, all of them. All of you, he says, will fall away. The whole lot of them. all the other 11 disciples will all fall away. And then secondly, that's the next question. What will all of them do? Well, they will stumble they will, they will fall away. Literally, the Greek word is scandalizo, from which we get our word scandal in English. And that word just simply means to fall, to, to, to have a fall. And they would fall away spiritually. The next question, thirdly, that we read there is, is that uh, why will the disciples fall? Well, Jesus makes it clear. You will all stumble because of me. Jesus, what would happen to him? would be the reason why these disciples would would fall away and stumble. And then finally, notice that Jesus' statement in verse 27 answers when all of this would occur. It would occur on the very night that Jesus spoke these words. So that tells us who, it tells us what, it tells us why, and it tells us when. So following the Lord's Supper and his teaching them in the upper room, Jesus predicts that all of his disciples will fall away that very night. I find it interesting that having just experienced this intimate time of celebrating the Lord's Supper together and having been able to sit with him while he taught them so uh, deeply about the, the spiritual issues they would face that it would, their falling away would occur immediately after that. I think there's a word of warning there for all of us as well. But then notice in verse 27 that Jesus says that such a falling away would be... The fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus says there in verse 27, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, this is a reference to the Old Testament prophet of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, to a passage that was written some 500 years before Christ. And it's, in its context, it's about the Messiah. It's, it was, a, it was a, a biblical passage written about the Messiah, and it simply says that, that, that the, the Messiah, who would be known as the shepherd, would be struck down. And as a result of that striking down by the Lord God, all of the shepherd's sheep would scatter. Now, we know, of course, Jesus himself declares himself to be the good shepherd in John chapter 10. So this, is a, this was a prophecy that was about Jesus, some 500 years before his life. There are two things that I want you to note about this prophecy from Zechariah. First of all, there seems to be a lot of debate at times about who it was that actually killed Jesus. Was it the Romans who actually nailed the, the nails into his hands and into his feet and lifted him up on a Roman cross? Was it the Jews who, who shouted, crucify him, crucify him, and refused to, to receive him back as one of their own? Or, or as theologically stated, is it you and I because our sins drove Jesus to the cross. Could, so who, who was it that, that, that killed Jesus? Well, from that we can truthfully say that all of them were guilty. But what I want you to know is that from what we read right here of Zechariah's prophecy and what Jesus says is that it is God himself who ultimately stands behind the death of Christ. See, Zechariah says that it is God himself, it is the Lord of hosts, who will strike the shepherd in fulfillment of his will. God ultimately stands behind what happened to Jesus. What Zechariah tells us is confirmed by the words of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and following, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Later in Isaiah 53, verse 10 The prophet writes this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Brothers and sisters, what we cannot sidestep when we read these passages is the fact that God ordained that his own son would suffer the penalty of God's wrath against sin. Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God, would die so that sinners like you and me might go free. And therefore, when we read that, that in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave, what we have to recognize is that his gift of love was the gift of his son, smitten and stricken for sinners like us. 1 Peter 3:18 tells us: for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. This is the gospel message. Jesus died in our place, and God sent him there to do that. So the first thing that we notice is that the sovereignty of God is on full display in the death of Christ because that was the means by which he intended to bring himself a people who had been cleansed and made spotless by the blood of his own son. But what I want you to notice next is the the important point that comes out of Jesus' reference to the prophet Zechariah is that when the shepherd is struck down, the sheep will scatter. As as one has put it, the inseparable 11, this band of brothers for three whole years, well, they would be blown apart and they would be severed from one another and from their Lord because of their fear. So the stumbling, the falling away that Jesus describes that will take place is directly connected to their being scattered. It's directly connected to their abandoning the Lord and their unity with one another out of fear based upon what happens to Jesus in just a few short hours. So that's the prediction that we learn about in verse 27. Jesus predicts a falling away that is based upon and the fulfillment of prophecy. But interestingly, notice then in verse 29, notice that Jesus' prediction is met by Peter's protest. That's the next point I want you to see. The second point on your outline is this it's the protest, and it's Peter's denial and debate with the Lord. Peter said to him in verse 29 Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Don't you just love Peter? I read a short article this week um, that began with this question Who's a good driver? And evidently, everybody is if you ask them. According to an American Automobile Association or AAA survey that was released in February of last year, the survey found that 83% of American drivers consider themselves somewhat or more careful compared with other drivers that they encounter. Putting it in plain English, 83% of people believe that they were better drivers than everybody else on the road. Now, when I first read that article, the first thing that hit me was, why am I always surrounded by the other 17%? <laughs> and then I thought, well, you know, maybe I'm not. Maybe, maybe some of that 83% just aren't as good of drivers as they think they are. Maybe they're not quite as good as they, they profess to be. Maybe they're self-deceived and they, they've convinced themselves that they're good drivers, but they're really not good drivers. And then that made me think, well, what if you're one of those? who think that you're a really good driver, but you're not as good as you thought you were. And I thought, no, nah, that, that couldn't be right. <laughs> but you know what that, that survey, that AAA survey, you know what it tells us? It tells us that we tend to have inflated views of ourselves. We tend to think highly of our own abilities, particularly as they, they are compared to others. Our abilities seem to be better than theirs. Is that not exactly what you hear coming from Peter? Peter says, Lord, look, I I see why you would say that some of these other disciples are going to fall away. I've been around them for three years. I know exactly what they're like. And frankly, I'm surprised that you called them to be your disciples to begin with. And I have no doubt that some of them are going to fall away. But listen, Lord, whenever the moment comes, you turn around, though everybody else is going to fall, you'll still see me standing side by side with you, standing tall when that moment comes. That was what Peter said. Peter was self-assured. He was confident. He was, his confidence prevented him from accepting what the Lord Jesus said would happen. He denied that, that falling away could ever happen to him. But then Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, I want you to think about the specificity with which Jesus rejoins Peter in this argument. He says, before the rooster crows twice. Now, interesting, Mark is the only one who talks about the rooster crowing twice. The other disciples just mentioned once. It doesn't mean that it didn't happen twice. It just means that Mark's the only one that gives us that detail. And many tried to figure out exactly, well, what does that mean? Well, the best argument that I came in, in, in my research was is that, Roosters tended to crow at 3 in the morning and 6 in the morning. Jesus says before the rooster crows twice. In other words, before the dawn even happens, Peter, you will more importantly deny me not once, not twice, three times. Jesus makes it clear that Peter, who was so self-assured, he was so confident, so proud, so presumptuous, had obviously overestimated his abilities. I mentioned that article about the drivers and the 83% who believed themselves to be better than all the other drivers that they encountered. In further questions of that same survey, it revealed that fully one-third of those drivers admitted to having texted while they were driving in the past month. Another of the questions revealed that that, uh, over half of them had driven at speeds of over 15 miles per hour over the speed limit in the last year. In other words, while many of those would assume and made the case that they were excellent drivers, they actually admitted to unsafe and potentially life-endangering driving practices. Now, you'll be happy to know this is not a sermon about driving. But I am illustrating the fact that as humans, we tend to lean on our own abilities and we tend to stand on our own accomplishments. And furthermore, as we evaluate ourselves in comparison to our fellow others around us, we tend to acknowledge their faults while remaining blinded to our own. I think that is further exemplified by Peter, who, in the face of the specificity with which Jesus predicted, his falling away, he said it would never happen. And then he goes on in verse 31 and argues intensely with Jesus and says, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. In effect, Peter was so confident in himself that he said the scriptures were false and that Jesus was mistaken. And if that weren't bad enough, the other uh, other ten disciples there joined in with him, as the end of verse 31 makes clear, saying the same thing. Jesus, whatever you say about the Scriptures, they're wrong, and whatever you've just said about us denying you is wrong too. The words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 18 come to my mind at this point. Paul writes, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. I'm also reminded of what the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs sixteen eighteen. My dad quoted it to me ad nauseum as I was growing up. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. What we come to know is that Peter and the other disciples ultimately learned these verses the hard way. In fact, note that the all... That Jesus talks about in verse 27 when he says, All of you will fall away. Notice down in verse 50 that it actually came true because in verse 50 we read that they all forsook him and fled. But Mark even provides us with more details concerning Peter. Mark and Luke, really, if you converge their two gospels accounts together, what you find out is that when, when When they came and arrested Jesus, they took him away. And then you learn very quickly that this same Peter who said that he would be there with Jesus and right lockstep with him, we find out that Peter followed Jesus at a distance. He was no longer right side by side with him. We learn later that when they get there into Jerusalem and they are, Jesus is taken in and he's being beaten and he's being interrogated, that outside that building, that those who had taken Jesus away had built a fire. And the Bible tells us that Peter stood there warming himself by the very fire that the enemies of Jesus had just built. What makes it even worse is that you find out is that later those who had been listening to Peter said, man, you've you got an accent like you're from Galilee. Aren't you one of those that have been following Jesus around? And not once, not twice, but three times, Jesus with curses said, I do not know the man. Here's what becomes interesting. What becomes interesting at that point is that you wind up finding out that, that Peter, who had said that this would never happen to him, Peter, who had protested so vehemently and said that he would never fall away, did exactly that. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you. If you're tended to to, to shake your head at Peter and you just can't believe that he would be like that, let me encourage you, don't do that. You want to know why? Because you are a human and you are sinful just like Peter was. In fact, let me ask you, have you ever failed the Lord Jesus? Have you ever denied Him? I, I was reading this week, Greg Allen has helpfully and convictingly put some of, these, some of life's failures in real life terms in front of us. He asked this, he says, perhaps your failure has come through failed opportunities to take a stand for the Lord in this dark world. He says, perhaps in the face of unbelieving people who mock or ridicule our Savior, you have not stood against the ridicule and spoken a good word for the Lord. Perhaps instead of testifying of him, you have frozen and remained silent out of fear of what other people might say about you or do to you. I want you to know that's a truly horrible thing to do. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, he says, Whoever confesses me before men, him I also will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But Whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Alan continues, he says, perhaps your failure has come through your personal service to the Lord. Perhaps you started off strong in your walk with the Lord Jesus. You were overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude for his having forgiven you of your sins. You were serving him sacrificially. But over time, your zeal for him has died out. Perhaps you allowed other demands of life to take priority over your original commitment to him. And now he writes, you find that you are completely given over to those worldly demands. For some perhaps the pursuit of luxury, the pursuit of riches has grown to rule over you so much so in fact that the Lord if the Lord were to suddenly take you up on your original promise of devotion and call you into some sacrificial field of service for his cause, you wouldn't be able to shake yourself free from this world enough to obey him. I want you to know if that's the case, that's a serious failure. The Bible tells us, Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Or perhaps, as Alan writes, your failure has come through your obedience to Christ in your daily walk. Perhaps, he says, You've tasted of the forgiveness of your sins by faith in him. Perhaps you were even baptized publicly and declared to everyone that you've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, but you've turned away. Over time, through a series of compromises, you've allowed some of your old sins to sneak back and work their way into your daily life. And the truth is you're now living a double life. On the one hand, you affirm that Jesus is your Lord with your lips, and yet privately, in secret areas of your life or in the attitudes of your heart, you disobey Him and deny Him as your Lord through your behavior. Again, brothers and sisters, I want you to know, that's a horrible thing to do. Jesus Himself asked this question in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? Alan concludes his set of convicting questions with this undeniable exclamation point. He says, Peter's denial of the Lord is surely the most noteworthy example in the Bible of a follower of Jesus who failed him miserably. But if we were honest, we'd have to admit that each one of us has failed him again and again and again. You see, that's what the Bible teaches us about ourselves. THE BIBLE CLEARLY TELLS US THAT WE'RE MISERABLE FAILURES, EVERY LAST ONE OF US. The Bible declares that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in fact, that is the reason why Jesus came and died. He died in the place of sinners just like you and just like me. But then the Bible goes on to tell us, and Peter's example makes it very clear that, and the other disciples as well, even when we have been saved, there still is the propensity in every one of our lives to fall away and to continue to fail. We still stumble. We still sin. We still fall away. Jesus had predicted that it would happen. And even though Peter protested, and as well as the rest of the disciples protested, they still stumbled. They still fell away. And the truth is, God had every right to wad them up and throw them away. They had abandoned him at his hour of greatest need, and he had every right to abandon them. But he didn't. In fact, that leads me to the third point that I want you to see it's the third P on your outline. And you probably thought that I missed verse 28, but I didn't. I intended to come back to it at this point. Let me read verse 28 to you. Jesus says, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Note the third and final point on your outline this morning. It's the promise. And the promise of Jesus resides in the resurrection and in reunion and in restoration Jesus had predicted that he would be struck down and that the sheep would scatter. But then tucked right behind that was this promise of resurrection and reunion. The first thing that we need to draw from this is how important the resurrection of Christ actually is. We've mentioned this again and again and again that Jesus has referred to the fact that when he got to Jerusalem that he would be handed over, betrayed. He'd be handed over to the the chief priests and the scribes, that he would be handed over then to the Gentiles who would crucify him. But then he said again, once in chapter 8, once again in chapter 9, and once again in chapter 10, I will rise again. He tells us the same thing here in verse 28. He's going to be struck down, but he will rise again. Brothers and sisters, what that tells us is, is that the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely essential to our hope. Jesus died for our sins, but the gospel message doesn't end with his death. In fact, the apostle Paul says that if we are people that just, res- just exalt in the death of Christ and not in his resurrection as well, we are of all people the most pitiable. Why? because it was because God raised him from the dead, that is the proof that his sacrifice was sufficient to save both you and me from our sins. If that was not the case, if he did not rise from the dead, we would still die in our sins and have no hope. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And verse 28 tells us that his death is not the end, but only the beginning because he would rise again. But then, what I want you to notice is that resurrection gives way to reunion. Jesus goes on to say, Listen, I will go before you to Galilee. Why is that such an important phrase? You see, even though the disciples would fall away, even though they would scatter, even though they would stumble because of what would happen to Jesus, Jesus, by telling them, I will go before you to Galilee, lets them know, even though you will fall, it will not prove to be fatal. To you. In matter of fact, it's not going to be a permanent failure that you, that you result with. Think about it for just a second. Galilee was the place where all these disciples, it really was the place where it had all begun for them. That was the place where so many of them were from. That was the place where Jesus had first called them and commissioned them to be his disciples. And now it would be, the pl- it would be Galilee where they would start over And Jesus would once again be able to work on their relationship, but the basis of their relationship here would be upon his death and his resurrection. Jesus says, I will go before you to Galilee. Do you remember the angel on that first resurrection morning when the women went to the tomb? They didn't know it was going to be the resurrection morning, by the way. They didn't know that it was Easter. They just knew that they were going to the tomb because their Lord had died, and they were going there to, to anoint his body for the burial properly. But when they got there, the angel of the Lord surprised them and said, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen just as he said. And then he gives them this. He says, and go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he said to you. Did you catch that? Go tell the disciples and Peter that He will be going before you into Galilee. What I love, what I love about this whole thing is that this announcement, as James Edwards has put it, was a remarkable work of grace and encouragement. The flight of the disciples, even Peter's pitiful denial, was not the last word. Edwards goes on to say this. He says, it's not given to human beings to speak the last word. The last word belongs to the risen Lord who says, I am going before you. And that's exactly what he did. And here's the thing that I finally want to point out to you. His resurrection, his reunion gives way toward restoration. One of my favorite passages of scripture is at the end of John, John chapter 21. There we find that all those disciples have gone back to Galilee just as Jesus had told them to do. And they're sitting around there waiting for Jesus, and they haven't found him. They hadn't hadn't appeared to him yet. And so Peter does what Peter does. He leads the disciples. He says, I'm going fishing. The other says, sounds like a good idea. We'll go with you. And they all get on the boat, and they go out, and they go fishing, and they fish all night, throwing the net over the boat, bringing it back, nothing. Throwing the net over the boat, bringing it back, nothing. Finally, this stranger shows up on the side, on the shore. He says, hey, boys, have y'all caught anything? No, thank you very much. We appreciate you reminding us of our failure. We have not caught anything. Well, why don't you throw your net on the right side of the boat? Sure, okay. And they did. And the Bible tells us that the weight of the fish was so great that they couldn't even haul it into the boat. John, John indicates that he was the first one to recognize who it was, the stranger on the shore. He says that the, the disciple that Jesus loved, me, was the one who recognized it was Jesus. But Peter immediately figured out who it was too. And it says that he didn't even take his jacket off. He just dove into the water and began to swim to the shore. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you one thing that you need to understand from that. If you have failed the Lord... The last thing you need to do is stay in that boat and as far away from Jesus as you can. The Bible calls you to dive in and to come to him because he's standing there on the shore willing to forgive you and to restore you. The Bible even tells us there that he cooked a breakfast of broiled fish for Peter and the rest of the disciples that day and he fed them. And then... And then Jesus asked Peter, not once, not twice, three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? And we might think that's a really cruel joke for Jesus to play on Peter. After all, it reminded Peter of the very point of his failure in denying Christ three times. But in actuality, what it caused was there to be a point of repentance. Because Peter said to him, Lord, you know all things. And you know above all things that I love you. And it was there that Peter was restored. Because the Bible says that Jesus commissioned him. He says, then feed my sheep. Six weeks later, Peter stood in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And he delivered a sermon that could... Potentially the best, one of the best sermons ever preached because 3,000 souls came to know and came to faith in Christ that day. Brothers and sisters, let me state this to you. When Jesus, the resurrected Christ, is reunited with a failure, you know what with repentance takes place? Restoration. All that then brings me to my sermon in the sentence this morning. And somebody told me this is the shortest sermon in the sentence you've written in months. This is my sermon and sentence this morning. Your failure is not fatal because Christ forgives and restores those who repent and trust in him. Do you hear the good news that's in there? There's not a one of us in this room who has not failed Christ on multiple levels, multiple times. Christ offers forgiveness and restoration for those who will repent and trust in him. We shouldn't take this as something that just allows us to live any way we want to, regardless of of the, the truth. Listen, understanding this, Peter, the same Peter, would later write in his own letter, in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, he knew what it meant to be proud. He said, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter's given us a lesson. He knew firsthand that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Jesus had told him, Peter, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. Peter goes on and says later in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Peter gives us advice based upon his own personal experience of how we ought to be vigilant, sober, and recognizing that we need to walk in the ways of truth. But brothers and sisters, don't miss this. No matter how horribly you may have failed, no matter how far you may have fallen, Your failure does not cause God to be unable to fulfill his good promises in your life. Recognize that your only hope rests in the crucified and resurrected Savior. Furthermore, recognize that if you have failed, the last thing you need to do is stay distant from the Lord. You don't need to hide and tell yourself that he doesn't want to hear from you because you have failed him so many times. He offers forgiveness. He offers restoration to all who repent and trust him. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together.